If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, tonight we'll be in uh, Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12. And as, uh, as Paul is continuing here in uh, showing us the supremacy of Christ and the fact that we must never seek to uh, turn away to anything other than Christ nor add anything to him, he here draws our attention to the circumcision of Christ, the circumcision of Christ. So let's, let's look at the text. We'll read, uh, we'll read verses 8 through 15 to set verses 11 and 12 in context, but tonight we'll be in 11 and 12. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, as we've been working through Colossians, we've been thinking some about the false teaching that was was coming their way. And I've mentioned that uh, there seems to have been a Judaizing element in this teaching. It was a, a bit of a mixed bag, but part of the bag seemed to have this, this Judaizing element. And so uh, we see some of this down below in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where there's this emphasis on food and drink and new moon festivals and the Sabbath day and so forth. And it would not be surprising at all then, given the Judaizing tendency, if they were also placing some emphasis on circumcision. Think of what was going on uh, in Galatia and Paul's response to them in the, the book of Galatians. And if indeed that were part of the bag that these false teachers were bringing to Colossae, then it would be no surprise uh, at all that Paul is, uh, is seeking to undercut them here by, by what he says. And, and even if circumcision were not part of the bag that they were bringing, nevertheless, Paul in telling us about the circumcision of Christ is still continuing with what he has been doing all along, namely exalting Christ and showing what Christ has done and who Christ is. And so let's, let's think about this. What was circumcision as it was given in the Old Testament? Well, it was a sign of the covenant given it to Abraham, as we've seen in the book of Genesis, Genesis 17. Romans 4.11 calls it a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So he believed God while he was uncircumcised and this sign of circumcision was given to him as a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while uncircumcised. His descendants after him were also to be circumcised. But 
physical circumcision, though required, was not enough. The Lord ultimately wanted not simply their body, but their hearts. Important though the mark was, it was pointing to something even more fundamental. In other words, you could have the mark of the Abrahamic covenant, physical circumcision, but you needed more than that. And you could have the mark without having the reality to which it pointed, namely the circumcision of the heart. And so it was a seal of Abraham's justification by faith, but it was not a seal of justification by faith to everyone who had the sign of circumcision because not all who were circumcised had faith. The bodily circumcision of the covenant pointed to the necessity of the circumcision of the heart. Many had the circumcision of the body, but did not have the circumcision of the heart. And thus it was that in the Old Testament, time and again, the Lord called on the people of Israel to circumcise their hearts or called them a people of uncircumcised hearts. And so, for instance, Moses speaks in Deuteronomy 10.16, and he says, So circumcise your heart today and stiffen your neck no longer. Right? This is the generation getting ready to go across the Jordan into the promised land. Their forefathers had died in the wilderness because of unbelief. And Moses says to the generation getting ready to go in, circumcise your hearts, stiffen your neck no longer. The Lord through Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourself to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. These people were evil, wicked. The Lord calls upon them to circumcise their hearts. He says again, Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair of their temples, for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. That, that was the problem. All throughout, the circumcision of the flesh is relatively easy, right? It might be unpleasant, but if it happens to you when you're eight days old, quickly forgotten, right? But the circumcision of the heart, cutting off what is evil, submitting to the Lord, that's impossible for anyone to accomplish in their own strength. And so in that uh, text that I read as we open tonight, Deuteronomy chapter 30, The Lord himself promised to do for the people what was impossible for them to do. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And if you read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 in context, it has a similar ring to the new covenant promises found in places like Jeremiah 31 and 32 and Ezekiel 36. The the language is not precisely the same in all of those places, but the gist certainly runs along the same lines. Namely, that these are promises of restoration, promises of a change of the heart which the Lord will bring. Deuteronomy 30, the Lord will circumcise your heart. Ezekiel 36, the Lord takes away the heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh, and so forth. And therefore, it should come as no surprise to us when we read here in Colossians 2.11 that Paul says, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is what the Old Testament had promised, that the Lord himself would circumcise the hearts of his people. And this great promise finds its fulfillment here 
in Christ. There's no surprises there. This is great news. This is the true circumcision, the ultimately necessary circumcision to which the circumcision of the flesh had been pointing all along. Although for the Old Testament Israelites, circumcision was a necessary right, now in Christ the situation has changed, and we read about that in Galatians. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but faith working through love. Again, Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but a new creation. This is ultimately what matters. The new creation, the circumcision of the heart, to which the physical circumcision of the Abrahamic covenant was pointing. In other words, it was all pointing to regeneration, to new life from the Holy Spirit, new life which would be tangibly expressed in repentance from sin and faith in Christ. And therefore, Paul says in Philippians 3, 2 and 3, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Circumcision, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is where it, the Old Testament circumcision was pointing all along to this circumcision of the heart, which is done in Christ, by Christ himself. And Paul points to the internal nature of this here when he says that it is done without hands or made without hands. And he speaks to the the kind of work that is done within believers by saying that it is the removal of the body of the flesh. Now, obviously, the old circumcision of the old covenant cut off flesh, literal flesh, the flesh of the body. And by way of analogy, The circumcision of Christ does not cut off physical flesh, the flesh of our physical body, but rather the circumcision of Christ cuts off the flesh in the sense that it cuts off the corruption of our nature. And if that seems too strong to say, just think of how Paul expressed the the similar idea in Galatians 5.24. He says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So here in Colossians 2, we see the circumcision of Christ in that it cuts off the the body of the flesh, our corruption. Galatians 5, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And what we need to understand is that this is a reality for us if, if we are Christians that we've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, that the body of the flesh has been cut away from us if we are in Christ. Now, just to to think about that that analogy that Paul draws there in Galatians 5 about the the crucifixion of the flesh, I I think it's helpful to remember that when something is crucified, it's nailed to the cross, but it's not completely dead yet, right? It's not completely expired. One writer was talking about the, uh, the crucifixion of the flesh, and he, he put it this way, and I think this is pretty helpful in terms of how this actually plays out in our lives as Christians with respect to the crucifixion of the flesh. He said, Crucifixion was a punishment appropriated to the worst crimes of the basest sort of criminals and produced death, not suddenly, but gradually, true Christians earnestly desire 
and constantly seek sin's complete extinction. They do not succeed in completely destroying it while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross and they are determined to keep it there until it expires. That's, that's the way it works with, with our flesh, right? It's, it's crucified, it's nailed to the cross, it's not quite dead yet, but it will be when we depart from here and go to be with Christ. The, and the, the similar idea here in our text is that, that we are circumcised, the body of the flesh is done away with, but at the same time we understand that as believers we still do struggle with the flesh. And so this is the Christian's complicated relationship with the flesh. It's crucified, it is circumcised, it is cut off from us. When we come to Christ in faith and repentance, we, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, are, are made new creatures. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. But, as that analogy with crucifixion made clear, uh, makes clear, the flesh doesn't die immediately. And it's not only that analogy in which it is clear to us, but it's also clear to us from our experience, right? Isn't this our experience as Christians, that we, we come to Christ, we desire to put to death the misdeeds of the body, we seek to do it, and by the grace of God, we are doing it, but we know that it's not yet fully and finally complete. The process of killing the flesh has begun, but the completion of that death has not yet fully come. To use uh, the older language, this is the, the mortification of the flesh. This is the mortification of sin, putting it to death. And therefore, Paul describes the process this way in Romans eight twelve to 14, when he says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God... These are sons of God. And even here in the, in the book of Colossians, Paul can speak of believers as those who have experienced this removal of the body of the flesh through the circumcision of Christ done without hands, but yet he does not act as if the flesh now poses no threat for those who have this circumcision in Christ. And so he says in, in chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore, consider your members, uh, the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, even though the flesh has been cut off, this is not, this is not the end of the battle, not yet. The fight goes on in this world until the final victory is achieved in the next world. And so, since this is the case, let's, let's keep on fighting. Let's... Say, as Paul said in Romans 6, 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? As Christians, we're the people who have crucified the flesh, who have had the flesh circumcised from us, and therefore we must not go on gratifying it. We must not become, as it were, uncircumcised again. And that's effectively what we're doing when we make opportunity for the flesh. We're effectively seeking to become uncircumcised. We're taking the flesh back to ourselves when it has been cut away or we're offering life support to that which we have crucified and put on the cross when we repented of our sins and believed in the gospel. That's the height of inconsistency and hypocrisy for us to do that. To, on the one hand, claim that we're putting sin to death and on the other hand, trying to keep it alive and 
breathe life into it. And so let us have no part in that, but rather let us be those who, by the grace of the Spirit, live out those words of Romans thirteen fourteen, where Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And then in verse 12 here of Colossians chapter 2, as, as Paul moves on, we see that for those whose hearts are circumcised, who receive that circumcision that is done without hands, Baptism, then, is the outward sign of that inward reality. The rite of baptism is to be the outward sign which points to the inward grace which has been received by the believer, that their heart has been circumcised by Christ. And thus, Paul connects baptism not so much with the physical circumcision of the Old Testament, but rather with the circumcision of the heart to which the Old Testament circumcision was pointing. And you see, you see the progression there that the circumcision of the flesh in the Old Testament time was pointing to what was needed, what was necessary, the reality of the circumcision of the heart. And then the circumcision of the heart then is signified by baptism as one is buried with Christ and raised with him. And so Paul brings these things together here in our text. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And thus baptism is the outward sign of the inward working of Christ, that we are dead to sin and that we are alive to God through Christ. And this was, in fact, the very same comparison that Paul was making in Romans 6, when he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? So the grace may increase. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so baptism then is a sign of death on the one hand, the burial. It's also a sign of new life, the resurrection on the other hand. And this burial then corresponds to our death to sin now in that the body of the flesh has been removed from us in this circumcision which Christ does upon our hearts and it signifies new life as those of us who have been raised up with Christ that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too are raised to walk in newness of life. And Paul expresses that here in verse 12 by saying that we are raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too are raised even now in this life and given new life in him. And as we are raised up we are raised up in this through faith in the working of God. We believe in our hearts that God raised Christ from the dead, and we believe that not only our own bodies will be raised in the end when Christ returns, raised from the grave, but we believe that we will be raised even here and now to walk in newness of life. Or to express it in other words, we believe that just as God raised Christ from the dead, so we too believe that by his gracious aid, we'll be able to live life 
with hearts circumcised. Hearts in which the flesh has been removed and we've been given new life so that we may live in Christ. And so what we need to see here in verses 11 and 12 is yet again this point that Paul has been driving home over and over. The glory of Christ. And we receive this this great benefit from him, namely this circumcision without hands. We receive the promise of Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 that the Lord had announced long ago that he would circumcise the hearts of his people. And now this promise is here in Christ It is to Christ's everlasting glory that he has purified a people for himself. And as a result of this, we must never look away from Christ or give anything else the the glory which he deserves. We must recognize that all that we need is found in Christ, and we must give him glory for that. And uh, this consists of two parts— a doctrinal part, part of our, our faith, in that we, we take no substitutes for Christ, we add no additions to Christ. Christ alone and Christ is sufficient. And there's also a practical part to this, namely that we live out this circumcision of the heart which is ours in Christ, that we continually seek to live as those whose hearts are circumcised. And We'll, we'll get there later, but let me just leave you with, with Paul's words here in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We've been, we've been raised up with Christ, and so therefore let us continue seeking those things which are above, namely the things of God, walking in obedience to Him, glorifying Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the work that you have done in our hearts, giving us new life in Christ. Lord, we ask for your grace that we would live as those who have been renewed, that we would no longer return to the bypaths and mire of sin, but rather that we would walk in your ways, which are good and right and true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.